0: We hear it all the time. Environmental protection costs money. Native plants and prairie grasses are beautiful, but they're a pain in the butterfly, or are
1: they? Yeah, well, there's a study that has shown that the installation and management of native species grasses, flowers, costs 40 to 50 percent less for the installation part of it and for the management part of it, as you know, in per- perpetuity, because there's less inputs that have to go in. There's no fertilizer required. There's some periodic maintenance, you know, weed control, but um, it's not just wholesale broadcasting of chemicals onto this and there's no, uh, you know, mowing every week that's going to be burning fossil fuels and contributing to noise pollution and all that.
0: This is Dave Nye, who I met at the Wild Things conference in Chicago last week, where he and his associate, Joe Krishan, had just spent five years restoring a bluff and ravine north of the city on the shores of Lake Michigan, where an army base called Fort Sheridan used to be. It dated back to the 1860s, the U.S. Civil War, and it closed in the 1990s. For over 125 years, the army and others had been dumping garbage into the ravine, killing native plants and letting invasive species take over, which ended up disrupting the flow of bugs and birds across the entire region. And that had consequences that we'll be exploring today. To fix the mess, Dave and Joe and his colleagues had to rip out all of the invasive trees and shrubs, then bring the natives back to life. And then they burned those resurrected natives for reasons we'll get into later. But why are native plants so important?
1: With natives, you get all those ecosystem services too, of the stormwater retention and the pollinator habitat, wildlife habitat. Uh, It's healthier for people, more enjoyable for people. Kids learn more when they're exposed to environments like that. I mean, there's all kinds of studies out there.
0: Pollinators, as in bees. I'm sure you've heard about the plunging population of bees and how this can cost farmers trillions of dollars. It turns out honeybees are only a small part of the equation. Nye calls them livestock. There are hundreds of species of native bees, butterflies, and other pollinators, insects that spread pollen among plants and help them reproduce. These pollinators, it turns out, depend on native plants. When the native plants go, the bees and butterflies go, and large swaths of our countryside and our rural economy go with them. Man may be unwittingly changing the world's climate through the waste products of his civilization. There's a group of us now who are proposing that the Earth has actually entered a new epoch, and that is
1: the Anthropocene. Anthropocene.
2: We know that the enemy is carbon and we know it's ugly face, we should put a big fat price on it and of course, add to that, drop the subsidies.
0: Earth, we broke it, we own it. And nothing is as it was. Not the bees, not the seas, not the forests, farms or fields. And not the global economy that depends on all of these. But we can restore it, make it better, greener, more resilient, more sustainable. But how? Technology, geoengineering? Are we doomed to live on a bionic planet, or is nature herself the answer? That's the question we address in every episode of Bionic Planet, a podcast of the Anthropocene, the new epoch defined by man's impact on Earth. And today we hear how the destruction of native plants has fueled the plunge in pollinator species, and what the backbreaking restoration of a single ravine tells us about the restoration economy.
2: Hi, I'm Joe Krishan with Conservation
1: Land Stewardship. I'm a project manager. Dave Nye with Conservation Land Stewardship. I'm project developer.
0: So you, you're on the business side and you're digging in the dirt kind of stuff. Okay, yeah. yeah this was a really fascinating presentation you just gave. I, I never really thought of how much work goes into restoring a bluff. Can you talk a little bit about what you
2: found when you, when you got there and how you approached it? the first step you know is usually you're going to want to get the invasive woodies out of the way so you have a matrix to work in and also you can expose any other kind of issues that might have been on site that were concealed um you know typically like you will get the underbrush out and then maybe that's like your phase one clearing and then you can come in and do the spec uh larger clearing that the you know we had specifications coming in um, and then we'll do the larger tree clearing but that'll open up a plane where you can see the following growing season, what invasives are there, what, what areas don't need as much attention, what do. So that, that's, that's the first step, definitely, is, is getting the woody material out, but also doing it in a way that you're not going to cause additional problems. You know, in, in heavily sloped zones. That's another thing you have to work with, you know, the team, talk to the engineers on, on your team, the landowners, and also make sure you're not going to, you know, cause anything, any more harm in terms of erosion. Right, because if you if you peel off the plants, you've got a naked hill. Big wave comes in, it takes it all away. Right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the root systems are still going to be in place, but those plants are effectively dead once you you know cut and herbicide the stumps. So, I wouldn't count on them to hold up for much more than a year or so. And you're also you got to think about rainfall and how that might affect uh, the grounds, the ground soils, surface soils. And and then where does the burning come in? So the burning will come in a little later. Typically, once you get a nice native matrix established that'll carry fire, then you want to come in and burn it. Usually, we, we like to say like, one, like three years after is usually ideal. You can sometimes do it sooner. A situation like some of the remnant communities I was discussing, those have a little bit more of a native matrix to start. And you can maybe burn those a little earlier. But once you get a nice enough, thick enough matrix that'll carry fire consistently through, then you can then you can execute the burn. So usually a couple two to 3 years I'd say is average. Okay, that's really interesting as a layman because I thought you would come
0: in and burn first. You first you you come in and you physically clear out the invasive species, then you plant the natives, then you burn them. Okay, why
2: why why in that sequence? So yeah, it it what it does it it helps Deplete the seed bank of weed seed. So if you're if you're burning in a, an area that you're establishing, it's going to subdue a lot of cool season weeds weeds that are real green during time of burning. Um, it's going to set those back and allow natives to 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 flourish a little better. Um, it also helps to germinate a lot of native species, especially some more rare species. They're finding actually germinate better when they're exposed to to fire and, and charcoal and so forth. And also it it tips nutrient balance to make it. The, uh, the soil more, more beneficial for, for native plants.
0: Joe and I later got to talking about books, and it turns out that one of our mutual favorites is 1491, New Revelations of the Americas Before Columbus by Charles C. Mann. In actual fact, I never read the book, but listened to the audiobook, which is excellent. I got it through audible.com and you can get it too for free and help me produce more episodes of Bionic Planet by getting a 30-day trial to Audible through audibletrial.com forward slash Bionic Planet. That's Bionic Planet as a single word with no dots, dashes, or spaces. If you're already a member of Audible but like the work I'm doing and want to help me do more of it, you can give me a good five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. Or you can become a patron at bionic-planet.com where you can support me for as little as $1 per episode and with a monthly cap. You can do so either via bionic-planet.com or via patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. Finally, you can help just by accessing me through the right podcatcher. Namely, access me through the Radio Public app that's radio public, like public radio, but backwards. They automatically pay me a few cents for every listener who hears the show all the way to the end, and that adds up. And it, it also struck me how how what a complex mosaic of plants you have. You can't just, you know, drop a bunch of, bunch of seeds and, and see what sticks. You talked about going in and scouting the terrain and
2: seeing what can go where... can you talk about that a little bit yeah so especially in the ravine habitats i mean you're dealing with a lot of a lot of sloping a lot of different sun exposures um different water exposures so uh, you know you really have to be sure that what you're planning where is going to work and that's why in in a lot of the more complex zones i would recommend you know doing plugging actually physically putting a plant plug in as opposed to seeding also because in those sloped areas a lot of the seed can flow can wash off in in a in a storm event right so Plugging is essential, but it's also it, it can also be more expensive. So the seeding is done still. Um, areas where you can, I'd recommend erosion control like blanketing, but that's that's cost not really cost effective over a huge area. Um, but where it is, and if you're doing a smaller ravine, I'd highly recommend blanketing it um, if you w- when you seed. So it's, it's just erosion protection blanketing. It's just armoring. Uh, most of you, I would recommend like a biodegradable one that's going to break down over the next few years. Uh, get a biodegradable blanket so that you don't have plastic netting in your habitat for perpetuity. <laughs> you
0: mentioned that you're, I think the term you used was flatlanders, right? So that's, that's where you have done the bulk of your work, and now you're moving into ravines. What are the biggest surprises you found
2: in going from that relatively simple landscape into something like this? Uh, the thing that jumps out to me most is just the crew restoration work is physical regardless but when you go ahead and you trans transpose it onto slopes and you know 200 plus feet sloped areas it's that much more uh, demanding and 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 it can be it can be daunting so it's really important to you know have goals set and goals in mind you don't just want to go out there aimlessly you want to you want to have you know concise goals that you want to accomplish otherwise you're gonna get overwhelmed and then because you have so many diverse plants you have to have a diverse crew right i mean these guys have to
0: have lots of different skill sets can you talk about the different uh, the diversity of skill sets that you need to go along with the diversity of of plants that you're working with
2: yeah definitely uh plant identification is probably one of the most important skills they have working in complexes like this you want to have site managers or or crew leaders or foremen you want to have them acclimated or, or you know at least familiarized with different habitats including you know dune prairie wetland and even beyond that there's there's plants that are just unique to these habitats that you wouldn't find around here you may find in more northern climates uh, in w- central northern Wisconsin area so you know you need someone who can 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 focus and think think about a variety of habitats habitats simultaneously um, and then also what kind of mes- methods of control to use on different species that might be invasive in those habitats and, there, and there's there's a lot of an important thing to realize with a site like this is it's not just like, oh, I'm in the dune and now I'm in the bluff. You know, there, there's a lot of hazy, it's it's a very nebulous boundary. And you get overlap and you get, you know, so it's it's even that much more important to be be flexible and have a, a full a, a full knowledge of, you know, the plant communities you are in and also what kind of invasives you might encounter. And I know you guys are hiring a lot, and we'll get that into
0: that in a little bit. But if somebody is listening to this and wants to maybe get involved in this work, what, how would you recommend they get started? What sort of... Do they just pick up a shovel and come in and say, "Hey, you know, can I can I do some uh, grunt work?" Or do they have to go to school first? How do they get into this?
2: Uh, yeah, you, I mean, you can definitely go to school first. That's it's not it's not a necessity though. Uh, I've I've been working in restoration for about ten years, and I think some of the some of the best uh, technicians and people who have moved on to other things have come from unconventional backgrounds. You know, I myself I studied anthropology in college, which you know can definitely be applied to to restoration, but it's really not you know, the, the science you'd expect someone to go into this field. and But it really does apply. And, I mean, I, I think that sometimes it's better to hire people with unconventional backgrounds just as much as it is to get people with conventional backgrounds. It's... I'm the type of manager, I like a mixed group of people with different perspectives. It's, it's more effective. Um, so to answer your question, I mean, you definitely don't need to go to school for it. But it does help. If you want to advance your career to a certain point, it's going to help you um, you know, get up into more upper management and administrative positions that will require a lot of technical expertise. And what is it that drew you into this? You start out, you're studying people, and then you move into working with plants. Can you talk about that a little bit more? So yeah, definitely. Um, and when you realize you know, the history of, uh, uh, the commun- the plant communities around here, they're, they were intimately intertwined with the native peoples that lived here. Um, you know, they, they were essentially agroforestry communities here, you know, and they would burn to, to clear the areas for hunting. They'd harvest acorns, you know, so the people were actively living and, and, you know, using the plant community as part of their life. Um, so it's always been people, I mean, at least for the last, what, 10,000 years or something or 20,000, I don't know what they think now. So it's always been, people have always been intimately intertwined with these communities.
0: Just to clarify, the communities he's referring to are communities of plants as well as people. It's the kind of thing that Michael Pollan wrote about in his excellent book, The Botany of Desire, A Plant's Eye View of the World. And guess what? That book also has a great audiobook, which you can get for free while helping me produce more episodes of Bionic Planet by getting a 30-day trial to Audible through audibletrial.com forward slash bionicplanet. That's Bionic Planet as a single word with no dots, dashes, or spaces. If you're already a member of Audible but like the work I'm doing and want to help me do more of it, you can give me a good five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. Or you can become a patron at Bionic-Planet.com where you can support me for as little as $1 per episode either via Bionic-Planet.com or via Patreon.com forward slash bionic planet finally you can help just by accessing me through the right podcatcher namely access me through the radio public app that's radio public like public radio but backwards they automatically pay me a few cents for every listener who hears the show all the way to the end and that adds up
2: You know, humans are part of nature. So, and we still are. We like to think we're not, but we we really are, and we're directly impacting all these communities still. So that that drew me into it. But also, just doing uh, I did uh summer jo- some summer jobs in restoration, and they were you know really hard, strenuous jobs, six or what four months long. But it, it really captured my interest, and I, I started learning about the plants. And then you, you, really, you can really develop an interest, and it just feeds itself. Like every, you know, every day you learn more when you're working, and you always will. You know, there's, you're never going to know it all, and it's a beautiful thing. And, uh, yeah,
0: so now you are, you're hiring people, which is
2: great. I think you said, uh, let's see, you've got 25 employees.
0: You're adding 9 to 12 more. So business is good. Where's, where's the money coming from?
1: it's really a growing industry literally and figuratively but people are getting more and more interested in doing what we consider the right thing is having using native species in their landscaping whether it's a small backyard or a large corporate campus I think the forest preserves were already on board but when it comes to private properties I think there's there's a lot more interest now just because of the publicity of it and there's a lot of clubs and groups that are forming around pollinators and around native plants and uh, it's, it's just a growing movement. So um, we're seeing that in the, in the business end of it. I spent a lot of time in the suburbs this last year. I was canvassing uh,
0: in the lead up to the election so I got to go out into the suburbs and it was really interesting to see a lot of areas that looked like they were newly restored habitat. So this isn't just my imagination. I didn't know if it was because I've, I've now learned about it and I'm more aware of it or if it really is a growing thing then. Uh, did you, could you would you want to talk to that or is that, yeah.
1: Yeah. Like, like I said, it's kind of, it's a growing trend and there, there are conservation communities that are popping up. Um, I mean whole communities, homeowners associations that are really, uh, taking hold of, of the concept of using native plants and, and utilizing what their ecosystem services that they provide in managing stormwater and, and all the other things that they can provide for animals and, and insects and birds and wildlife. Um, and then, you know, there's there's quite a few um, organizations that are promoting this at a homeowner level, too. So you'll see more and more of these signs in yards, whether it's conservation at home or it's the National Wildlife Federation uh, signs. There's just more interest in it. People are proud of what they're doing. And uh, now, you did you start the business? You're the founder? or I've been with conservation uh, land stewardship for less than a year. Um, my background is in wildlife management, so I worked for the state of Wisconsin for a dozen years. I worked for the National Wild Turkey Federation for a dozen years. Um, I worked for some other nonprofits and other state agencies for a while. So yeah, and I I landed here kind of by happy accident in Illinois to get married. (laughs) Congratulations, yeah.
0: Uh, Now, I know this company was founded in 1999 and neither of you were there at the start, but Joe, you've been with CLS the longest of the two of you. How has the
2: business changed since, since you got involved? You know, typically you go to a bid now, and there's, there's going to be up to 15 to 20 uh, different companies bidding. When back in the day, you know, when Ken started out, uh, CLS, you know, there was maybe four. four you know, so it's kind of interesting.
1: And you mentioned earlier that CLS is getting purchased by another. Conservation Land Stewardship is a subsidiary of the Davy Tree Company. We're part of what's called the Davy Resource Group, and that's more of the environmental consulting branch of it. So there's been quite a few acquisitions around the country of different companies that are under that Davy umbrella. There are, I think, 9,000 employees, 10,000 employees nationwide or internationally. And they're poised to be a billion dollar company this year. But we still maintain that small company, small town feel because we kept the name.
2: We still have our original upper managers too in place. So the, the guys who built the company are still with us and still growing the company.
0: I did some digging and learned a bit about Davy Resource Group. It's a pretty interesting operation. The company was founded in 1880 as the Davy Tree Expert Company by a self-taught forester from England named John Davie. His son, Martin Davy went on to become governor of Ohio. The company has been employee-owned since 1979. Maybe that's why they seem to be treating their people right. Treat people right, and they'll treat you right. And I'm that way too. I hope you like the show and find it helpful. And if you do, you can treat me right and help me produce more episodes by giving me a good five-star review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. Or you can become a patron at bionic-planet.com where you can support me for as little as $1 per episode either via bionic-planet.com or via patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. Finally, you can help just by accessing me through the right podcatcher, Namely, access me through the Radio Public app. That's Radio Public, like public radio, but backwards. They automatically pay me a few cents for every listener who hears the show to the end, and that adds up.
1: Yeah, as far as um, the bee issue goes, uh, you know, th- all the groups that I mentioned earlier were trying to address that through um, native, native plants. The native bees, there's about 4,000 different native bees um, that rely on native plants and they evolve together. Um, They've timed their life cycles together to um, provide pollen, nectar, um, at the right time in the lives of these bees. So, you know, using native plants versus a cultivated variety or a um, non-native plant that came from somewhere else in the world that's just not timed correctly or doesn't provide the amount or um, volume or or quality of pollen and, and nectar, that our natives need, um, it can do harm to them because they're wasting energy trying to collect this when they're not. It's not there. Um, another issue with the native bees is actually honeybees, which is a non-native. It's basically livestock, and um, they've carried and they can outcompete native bees, um, and they can carry some diseases and, and um, parasites too that affect our native bees. I've never heard honeybees described as livestock before.
0: But I've heard a lot about colony collapse disorder, which you've probably heard of too. That's the technical term for this global collapse in the population of bees. When the U.S. Department of Agriculture began tracking hives in 1947, there were 5.9 million colonies of bees. In 2008, that number had plunged to 2.4 million. Now they have bounced back a bit, but they're still more than 50% lower than they were in 1947. The thing is, bees aren't the only pollinators that are dying off. We're also losing bats, butterflies, and hummingbirds. A lot of it's a mystery, and some groups have blamed industrial pesticides, while others have blamed genetically modified organisms though I have to say I'm skeptical of that last one. I did some digging on this native plant aspect, and it turns out that scientists have been warning about it for decades. It's the rest of us who've been slow to pick up on that connection. Fortunately, that's changing, and policymakers are now encouraging development that favors pollinators, which
1: Nye says translates into a business opportunity a new emerging uh, industry is the community solar where you see the the larger field arrays um, that a community can tap into and residents can decide whether where their energy comes from um, they did they let the power company know which source they want to pay for um, and recently illinois and some surrounding states have passed some legislation that will allow for the certification of sites as pollinator friendly and they've created checklists or um, a cookbook basically that can be followed. So when a a solar developer meets all the criteria, they can be certified as pollinator friendly. And I think that helps them a lot in finding sites. It's more more, uh, appealing to the community. So they'd be more willing to start out with a, a community solar site. And you know, this is right up our alley. This is what we do. We plant natives and maintain them. I assume there are other plants and animals that have evolved along with these plants too. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, not only bees, but other pollinators, too, like butterflies and moths. Not only they're uh, needing the nectar and pollen, but their larvae need host plants to eat. And some of them are very specific. You know, we all know monarch requires milkweed, but there's a lot of others that are host-specific, too. Comparing native plants to non-native plants um, in, say, North America, a native oak tree is going to provide food for the larvae, adult insects of uh, over 400 species whereas if you took something from not from this country like a ginkgo tree which is asian um, that will provide food for you know potentially three four species of insects of native insects so you know it just goes to show that the the coevolution of these species is really important to consider when you're choosing plants for just a landscape or for uh, a larger area
2: yeah and no, another thing too that's important to realize too is like for for birds like they, they you know we have a misconception that they mostly eat like fruit, but they really mostly eat insects so that's another reason these, these native insects are so important is to support like bird populations as well and up the
1: food chain and ninety five percent of our birds feed their young insects. <laughs>
0: We're all one big ecosystem. I depend on you, my listeners for support, and you hopefully get something too. If you like what you're getting and want more, you know what you can do, but I'm going to repeat it anyway. First, you can give me a big, fat, healthy review on whichever podcatcher you access me through. That matters because the more reviews I get, the more ears I get. And the more ears I get, the more minds I can reach and we have to reach hundreds of millions of minds if we're to meet this climate challenge. Second, you can become a patron at bionichyphenplanet.com, where you can support me for as little as $1 per episode, either via bionichyphenplanet.com or via patreon.com forward slash bionicplanet. And you can do so with a monthly cap. So you can do $1 per episode with a $5 monthly cap, and you'll never pay more than $5. Third, you can access Bionic Planet through the right podcatcher. Namely, access me through the Radio Public app. That's Radio Public, like public radio but backwards. They automatically pay me a few cents for every listener who hears the show all the way to the end, and that adds up. Fourth, you can buy stuff on Amazon by clicking through to Amazon from my own website, bionic-planet.com. And finally, you can join Audible by going to audibletrial.com forward slash bionic planet and that brings me to my final question and it's one i think i'm going to start asking every guest from here on in after joe and i had a chat about the book 1491 i turned the recorder back on and asked dave if there were
1: any books he'd like to recommend one of my favorite books is by benjamin Vogt, uh, v-o-g-t is his name and the book is a new garden ethic he has a lot of his own philosophies but he's borrowed a lot of philosophies from Aldo Leopold um, and then from a contemporary Doug Ptolemy who's an entomologist from um, the East Coast A good thing about the
2: like these books that Dave's recommending I I, I, you know, I stand by too I think one of the best points about it is that you don't need a lot to make a big difference that's the point of them like you can you can make a garden the size of this couch and you know I know I've seen remnant uh, native areas that in a size, in an area this big, there's dozens of species. So you can really do a lot with a small area. If you just have a garden on your porch or whatever, you'll plant an aster in your backyard, a rare aster or something that you don't commonly see on a roadside and somehow, you know, within, you know, when it's blooming, these insects find their way. It's crazy. I know there's studies going on now about electrical and chemical signaling that actually goes on with some of these plants. And it's just insane how they can find these beacons. So that's how I know, you know, and I know you're you're probably not gonna get like threatened and endangered species necessarily, but your generalists and and insects that might be in a nearby hedgerow or something surviving, they'll find it, you know, it's, it's, it's it's really remarkable.
0: Joe Krishnan of the Conservation Land Stewardship, or CLS, closing out this edition of Bionic Planet. I recorded that interview in Chicago but I'm recording the wraparound here in Washington, D.C., where I'll be attending the Ecological Restoration Business Association, or ERBA's, annual policy meeting on behalf of Ecosystem Marketplace. I hope to have some good stuff for you from here, and I promise I will have some good stuff on Ecosystem Marketplace. That's Ecosystem Marketplace, all one word, EcosystemMarketplace.com, which is my full-time gig. Until next time, I'm Steve Zwick in Washington, D.C. Thanks for listening.